Hello and welcome to EMS in the Motor City. On this Demcast, you'll hear from amazing EMS physicians and some of the best EMS providers from in and around the city that moves the world. So grab a seat, buckle in, and away we go. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the EMS in the Motor City podcast, our first edition of what we hope is going to be many. Let me introduce you uh, to who's in the room this morning. We have the medical director for DEMCA, that's the Detroit East Medical Control Authority, Dr. Rob Dunn. Good morning. Glad to be here. Good morning. I'm also joined by Deputy Medical Director, Dr. Matt Ball. Hi, Matt. Hi, how are you doing? as well as our executive director, Mr. Damon Gorlick. Morning, Damon. Good morning, everybody. Thank you. And I am Erin Brennan. I am the EMS director for Sinai Grace Hospital and assistant medical director here at DEMCA. So we'd like to take a few minutes this morning to talk to you guys about EMS refusals, how to kind of do it right, and ways to avoid any pitfalls. But before we get into that, it's been a long time coming, talking about this podcast and education for EMS in DEMCA. So I'm incredibly excited to be here with my co-hosts. And uh, I'm just going to ask Dr. Dunn what he's most excited for this morning, the fact that we've already gotten this up and running. Well, I'd say I'm really excited about the fact that we're finally doing this. It's something that we've wanted to do. We obviously get out and do education at the agencies, but that's really just a one-on-one. This gives people an opportunity to log in, listen to this wherever they get their podcasts, and have some educational update that's specific to our medical control authority. Certainly, we're going to cover some general topics, but we want to make sure that people know what's going on in our med control authority. Exactly. We're speaking mostly to our medics and our basics in the DEMCA area, but certainly we'll have generalizable information that we can use and spread throughout anybody who who does EMS and works in the field and loves EMS the way we do. Uh, Dr. Ball, anything you'd like to add about how we got here and what you're excited about this morning? Well, I'm excited that we're uh, here doing whatever the vocal equivalent of putting uh, pen to paper is. You know, I... uh, really excited to get this podcast together and I, I I feel very strongly about the subject material you know refusals are a minefield uh, and there's a lot of uh, nuance about how they should be appropriately managed um, also very excited for the upcoming blue apron sponsorship <laughs> <laughs> yep hopefully uh, yeah if somebody has a partnership sponsorship for us we'd be happy to uh, entertain that Damon can you uh, tell us what you're interested in talking about today what you're most excited about I'm just excited for this opportunity to get this information out to the providers in a more casual format. I think this is a very good way for us to disseminate what our true expectations are to the people working on the fields every day. Awesome. So we are all uh, ready to spend some time talking about EMS refusals. As Dr. Ball had said, They tend to be a minefield with lots of uh, pitfalls, and it's important that we understand how to get it right and how to get it right every single time we interact with patients. There is some legal ramification if we don't. Legal ramification um, if we allow a patient to refuse who maybe shouldn't refuse, or if we don't allow a patient to refuse when they should be allowed to refuse. 
there's potential to get into hot water as a individual provider and as a EMS agency on both sides of the spectrum. So we're going to take some time and talk about what it means to have capacity or competency to refuse EMS transport, what that means in our special populations, so pediatrics particularly, and then how are we going to make sure that the documentation is up to snuff and that you don't end up in front of PSRO wondering why your refusal didn't go as planned. When we talk about uh, care and policies and procedures, we have protocols that kind of govern what we do here in EMS. These can all be found for our area at www.demca.org. That's D-E-M-C-A dot O-R-G. What we're going to be talking about mostly today is the protocol in Section 7-19 under refusal of care for the adult and minor. I think we all learn best by talking about a specific case and example. So, Dr. Ball, why don't you walk us through one of our recent PSRO cases? Right. We, we had a look at a case recently that involved a refusal, and I think that there are a lot of good learning points here. In general, the crew was dispatched to the home of a 16-year-old who complained of difficulty in breathing. The narrative section uh, made sure to point out that the patient was ANO times four with a GCS of 15. The patient was assisted to the ambulance and said, can you just give me a treatment for my asthma? They noted moderate we wheezing, gave a treatment. Um, the patient's vital signs improved. Uh, they noted that the patient's mother was contacted via phone and informed. And at that point, the, uh, that's where the documentation ends. So I presume the crew left at that point. Yeah, so did was there any documentation that they called for medical control on that case? There was not any documentation that they called for medical control. And I think that competency versus capacity or kind of competency and capacity is, is what we're really talking about there because the person has to be competent first. So what does that really mean? Yeah, they got to be A&O times four. Yeah, they've got to be talking to you. But it's it's more than that, really. They've got to understand what is going on. And they've got to explain that to you, the, the medic, in such a way that you're comfortable that they understand. So that's one part of it. They really need to have that, that understanding of, of what it means to be refusing. And they've really got to be competent to do it. So competency is a thing that is sometimes difficult, right? We've all seen patients that were maybe a little bit demented and seemed like they were making a lot of sense, but we've only find out later that the guardian makes their decisions for them and they're not allowed to keep their own wallet and things like that. So, you know, we need to make some effort to find out what's going on and see if someone is really competent to refuse. So it's documenting that they really understand, you're comfortable with their understanding of it. And for a case like this, and honestly, any case that you're not sure of, you need to call for medical control. So we mandate the calling of medical control when a procedure or medication is given. And of course, when there's a pediatric refusal, like in this case, and Damon, what other highlights are in our protocol? Well, the main one, like you said, any medication given, and I think the thing to keep in mind with that too is what we see a lot of, even on the basic sides, if you're given oral glucose, 
that does count as a medication. Albuterol obviously definitely counts as a medication, but when pediatrics, there does have to be a parent or legal guardian there to sign off. And especially medical control does need to be contacted at that point in time. So I think this this case hits on a couple of things. And Rob, you talked about capacity and competency. I think the, the crux of this is really understanding. So those of us who have little kids, like my four-year-old, I can ask her if she knows where she is and she'll tell you her name, which makes her A&O times four. But that doesn't really cut it when we're talking about understanding and capacity. Because if you ask my four-year-old to make a complicated medical decision, She's not going to come up with a right one most of the time. This is going to be yes to stickers, no to shots, and medical intervention at all costs. So what we want to make sure is that our patient has a deep understanding. So the ability to fully comprehend the medical treatment, the risks of non-treatment, and their other options for treatment or transport. So... Matt, can you talk to us a little bit about maybe what we've seen as alternative options documented well or documented poorly or things you see coming into the ER as far as uh, refusals of EMS care? Well, first of all, I definitely love all the points that have been brought up. And, you know, I think there's that old chestnut, it didn't happen if it wasn't documented. Uh, I, I get the sense that a lot of these meaningful conversations about do you really understand what's going on or taking place and maybe not documented but when you know we talk about other things in addition to just making sure that you appreciate and demonstrate that the patient or whoever is responsible for the patient understands exactly what's going on and what might happen if they don't come into the hospital um, getting that in there you know uh, in, into the medical record um, what are some good things to see in addition to that are that you know, for complicated issues or issues where it's vague or unclear whether someone had capacity or not, uh, please please bug your friends in medical control. We're, we're always happy to hear uh, calls for help like that and to see that that was documented, that you got someone else on the team to uh, help you make this decision. A couple of other things that I think are are good to document. You know, if someone is refusing to be brought into the hospital, uh, maybe a backup plan for if this gets worse, please recontact 911 or bring them in. Uh, if X happens, do Y. Uh, and definitely having a plan for follow-up to make sure that the patient continues to do well. Yeah, I think that's a really key point, Matt, is that We'd like to know about these cases, and we'd like to try and see what happens with them. We've looked back at cases that there was a refusal that had repeat EMS contact over the next 48 to 72 hours, wasn't it, Damon? 48 to 72, but we're really focusing on the 24-hour window of people that were either in cardiac arrest or had fully expired at that point in time. Right, so that's a really serious outcome, right, for someone that refused care. Yes. Uh, we saw, I think it was uh, 2019, there were six individuals, unfortunately, that happened to. Uh, 2020 and 2021, respectively, there was uh, 30 and 31. Uh, halfway through the year of 22, we've gone back down. I think we've only had about three to four right now. So, so it is turning back down in numbers. Uh, but... What, one thing, if I if I can add, the main th cases that we do see with refusals through PSRO 
or patients that did refuse transport, but then either drove themselves or family took them to the hospital. So these are patients that somehow between not wanting to go with EMS did make the determination to go to the hospital on their own. And I feel there's a great opportunity, like you were saying, Dr. Ball, to contact medical control when you're on scene to reinforce that element that you as a provider really feel that this patient should go to the hospital. So you can call medical control. It's on a recorded line. We can be talking to a doctor saying like, hey, this patient really looks kind of sick and doesn't want to go. Can you help me try and convince them to go? So that way we at PSRO don't get this he said, she said back type thing. Yeah, and I think that that's really important. One of the things I, when I'm on the other end of the radio doing medical control, I often try and have a conversation with the patient because it's, uh, you know, tell them what's going on, try and get them to take it seriously. One of the take-home messages is there: you're not going to get people, even who we all agree, should probably go to the hospital. People are who are competent to to refuse and have the capacity to refuse sometimes just aren't going to go. I think we've all seen this both pre-hospital and in the hospital. I've had patients who are having an ST elevation MI refuse to stay for any care or intervention. So people are free to make bad decisions. We just need to make sure that they understand what the consequences are. And I think we, we took a look as a medical control authority during the COVID pandemic, just how complicated people's reasons for refusing transport could be. Um, we'll link in the show notes to an article published by our Demka team, but just because they're refusing transport to the hospital with EMS doesn't mean they're actually wanting to refuse care. And sometimes the best thing you can do for a patient on scene is to help them make a good choice about private transport to the appropriate emergency department that is maybe able to handle the stroke or STEMI, follow up with their primary care physician, or some really good education about what do they need to watch out for if the uh, medical condition they're having becomes more serious. And to make another point about contacting medical control, a really important part of understanding the decision you're making is understanding the consequences and when you contact medical control, you're dealing with folks in the hospital who may have uh, a different perspective at least, but may have a better understanding of how these disease processes tend to play out when people come in versus when they don't. And there's also always the factor of, you know, whether it's um, hearing uh, someone with different qualifications, whether a doctor or a nurse say the same thing that you do versus just hearing that voice of authority go through the radio or just hearing another person uh, say you really need to come in. Sometimes that's uh, that's um, uh, kind of a, a, an important step in helping people make the, uh, uh, the right responsible decision. And for those folks that are competent and have the capacity and are still making a bad decision, it's another set of ears on them to talk to them. My residency program director always used to joke, it's always good to have a lot of hands to carry the coffin if there's a bad outcome. And, uh, and and that's kind of part of this as well. So we have the saying, load the boat with all the friends who you want to be sailing with you into that lawsuit, if that's the way it goes. <laughs> Re- recruiting co-defendants uh, <laughs> yeah. versus adding pallbearers, right? <laughs> that's right. So Matt walked us through a PSRO case from earlier about a 17-year-old who was refusing, which puts that 
uh, patient in our special population of pediatrics. Damon, can you walk us through what our protocol says about pediatrics specifically when it comes to refusal of medical care and transport? Yeah, not a problem. It'd be my pleasure. The, the first thing is we define uh, pediatrics as anyone who is under the age of 18. The main thing to really keep in mind with this population is the only people that can refuse care or treatment with them is the parent or legal guardian. And if you're ever on scene and you have questions about that, that is the most appropriate time to contact medical control. We also do say that anytime that there is care refused for a pediatric patient, that medical control is contacted and notified of it. Sometimes with kids, too, there is a, and people under the age of 18, there is a concern for abuse or neglect. Um, and in those cases, it's especially important to contact medical control. But if you suspect abuse or neglect, uh, particularly when it's related to a refusal, that's an excellent time to call your supervisor as well to get extra support, a new perspective, and some help with the issue. Now, not only is reporting suspected neglect or abuse the right thing to do, you are required to in the state of Michigan, as with most states in the country, EMS clinicians are mandated reporters. So you are legally required to report this, to fill out a form called a 3200 to submit to Child Protective Services with the help of your supervisor. And the link to that is on the Demka.org website. And prior discussions with most of the agencies operating in our area, they already have a plan for this. If there's a question, please reach out to your supervisor, as Dr. Ball mentioned, because that mandates a report both by phone and on a form. And we all have to do that. But this is where you'd have that discussion with medical control about whether your concerns should result in a report to Child Protective Services. So it's a great time to have that discussion and it's an important piece of that discussion. And I know we get some questions sometimes about emancipated minors and other, and other things. So that's something that really need to discuss with medical control. It's way too complicated to go into all the factors that might allow someone who's a minor to refuse. And honestly, even when I look at someone's paperwork in the hospital, I usually have to reach out to a social worker or somebody. So when in doubt, please have a specific discussion with medical control. So we, we've talked about the only people that can refuse for a individual under 18 would be a parent or legal guardian. So... Rob or Matt, when you've got a crew calling in from the field and the only person on scene with a, a minor patient is a, a maybe an older sibling or an aunt or uncle, uh, how do you suggest that EMS handle that kind of tricky situation? Well, uh, I appreciate other perspectives as well, but you know, definitely if they are not able to be signed off, they need to be brought into the hospital for evaluation if you're unable to locate a parent legal guardian. Um, this uh, is also another situation where definitely contacting medical control, getting some help from your supervisor uh, in, in terms of being able to possibly locate the guardian uh, or being able to make contact with them may be super valuable. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think that 
you know, someone who is a 16 or 17 year old, you're probably not going to be really able to force them to, you know, go with you if they don't if they don't want to. But you need to tell them that, you know, you're going to have to notify somebody and, that, you know, you might need to notify Child Protective Services if their guardian can't be reached. And obviously, you can't necessarily spend all the time in the world on scene with somebody. But this is where you're explaining the situation, right? We all live in the real world here. Um, explain that situation to medical control. Make sure your supervisor knows about it and that even your dispatcher because you could easily get called back to that address when the parent arrives. So what I'm hearing from both of you really mirrors kind of what I do in my practice, right? We ask EMS to take every step possible to locate a parent or guardian. And that doesn't mean they have to present in person. This could be a phone call. And, uh, you know, if that's not feasible, then there are times when we have, um, you know, had patients refuse into the care of a, a trusted relative or friend, but it becomes really important to document the name and the phone number of who that individual is in the run report so that if there's a question later, we have some way to contact. This is really only a situation when you've really exhausted all efforts on scene and aren't able to reach a parent or guardian. Um, and I, I think that's a a good point, Rob. We we live in the real world here. We understand that these protocols are not going to be hard and fast for every single situation. And that's when we'd like you to use your phone a friend button and reach out to uh, Med Control so we can give you a hand with that. Uh, I think this is probably a great place to, to segue into um, what we need and would like to see in a perfect world as far as documenting the refusal for both a adult patient and a pediatric patient to make sure that all the key points are hit and to keep everybody out of trouble. I think the main thing that I would really want to see in documentation is the perspective that the provider really felt that the patient needed to go to the hospital. And a lot of the documentation on the refusals are, are lacking that. We get the standard ANO times four, told them they may die, the end. But it doesn't really go into what efforts you try to do to persuade that patient to get the continuation care, especially if somebody needed it. And these are the cases that we do see in PSRO because those patients do end up in the hospital, whether they drove themselves or family drove or they called 911 and a different agency took them, that we don't know what happened actually on scene. So the more you can document and the more you can get medical control involved early, the better off you will be. Yeah, I'd just like to say these are cases where you probably want to spend more time documenting. Sometimes, you know, we see complicated injuries or medical cases that are, you know, slam dunk transports, and they have pretty, pretty extensive documentation about what happened and the patients coming to the hospital. But that person that refuses is actually quite a bit higher risk than that multiply injured trauma patient that you're rapidly taking to the trauma center. So make sure you think about what your documentation is going to look like to someone looking at it the next day, the next week, or farther down the road. And, and we're definitely comfortable being the first access point when folks have an emergency and feel like they need medical care. But in this case... Uh, definitely to reiterate Rob's point, you're you're the first and last uh, person that they contact with during that encounter. So that brings a lot of additional responsibility. Please document, 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 make it easy 
uh, for us when we're looking at these uh, charts afterwards should something happen. You know, please talk to medical control. Please document the, that you talked to medical control, the name of the doctor that you spoke with. Please document that you contacted your supervisor. Please contact, uh, document the, the name and number of the adult that you left the patient with. Document the conversation that you had with them. Yeah, and I think that people should be aware that we try to review all of these records through the DEMPCA EMS information system that's available to every medical control authority. Damon pulls and sends us a report so we can review what happened with these cases. So people are looking at your documentation, so it is important. To piggyback onto that, you know, Damon mentioned before, we see a number of documentation with refusals being patient was advised of all risks of refusal up to including death. But we, we know in the real world, again, like that's not likely the case for the entire spectrum of emergencies or perceived emergencies that our patients call for. So, you know, we have the, the lift assist or, you know, somebody who fell and needs a little bit of help that you're documenting a refusal on. The likelihood of needing to explain to them that they might die after they, you know, fell over and needed a lift assist is probably overkill. What we want to see is a realistic assessment of the complaint that they were calling with and what we think is actually the most likely risk of refusing transport to the hospital or medical care. I just want to kind of weigh in on that lift assist piece because we don't have a ton of these in the Detroit East Medical Control Authority. Um, but they are quite common in, in many places, and it does happen. And the idea of uh, assisting a person to get back up to, to help them out, it's great. But that person needs a real assessment, right? There's no such thing as a lift assist that didn't include a patient assessment. And there's a lot that's been written about that nationally, and people have seen the risks. You know, why is that person on the floor? What is their blood pressure? What is their heart rate? Do they have other symptoms? They need a complete assessment and need to be treated like any other patient that refuses care. And as Aaron mentioned, you know, it needs to be a realistic discussion about about what, what could happen and why maybe you do want to go get checked out. And again, if there are significant abnormalities and you're worried about that person, really try and encourage them to go to the hospital. And I, I know that you all are familiar with this, but when, when you look at a lot of cases where EMS encountered a patient and then within a day or two something bad happened, a lot of those calls do go out as lift assist or uh, person down or a sick person or just very vague complaints. And when I review charts, I, I find that the best refusal documentation isn't related to whether or not it's a complicated, nuanced refusal. It's related to whether or not the providers who saw the patient were just how worried they were that something bad was going on. Um, so if you're able to approach even the um, kind of the most seemingly obvious uh, lift assist case with that mentality, could there be something wrong? Uh, uh, then that I, I think that that lead to better care and documentation of refusals. Yeah, I think that would you know go a long way in speaking for you, right? So when a lift assist or when a refusal somehow ends up complicated or the patient has a bad outcome and it gets referred to PSRO or we review it as a medical control authority team, your documentation is speaking for you before you can. And if you'd like to stay out of the spotlight of our review, the best thing you can do is really give us a great picture of what was happening on scene. Um, 
we also mentioned, Dr. Ball mentioned again about EMS going out on a lift assist or a refusal and then something bad happening to the patient within the next 24 hours. We have done our own digging and have found that patients with abnormal, abnormal vital signs are at high risk of something bad happening after a refusal. So I would encourage anybody out there who is doing refusals to really take a moment and get a great full set of vital signs, a full set uh, of assessment, document all of that. And if the patient has a tachycardia or hypotension or even severe hypertension, take a pause, take a minute to think, and really evaluate what the risk to this particular patient is. If they refuse for this medical emergency, document that, have an informed discussion with the patient. And use that knowledge of those abnormal vital signs that we've learned from our review to help your discussion with the patient. Hey, you know, your heart rate's a little fast. That, that often means there's something bad going on. We can't sort that out on scene. You really should go to the hospital. It helps to inform the patient a bit better. That's definitely good. Maybe something like your heart rate is 120 for someone your age. We would expect it to be about half of that. That can be a sign that's something wrong. Uh, And especially if you detect abnormal vital signs, it's really difficult when you get a call, oh, this is just a lift assist. That significantly biases you towards uh, kind of blowing off things that you see that might be warning signs. And it's, it's very difficult to get yourself out of that mindset that this is just a lift assist. I don't need to do a full evaluation, but you know, as much as you should approach every run as a, a real run, any abnormal vital signs should maybe have some alarm bells going off in your head. So to highlight a few of the concepts we've, we've talked about today and the things that we think are most important as a medical control authority leadership team are the difference between capacity and competency as a legal definition or a working definition, and really the crux of this being understanding for the patient. Does the patient truly understand the medical condition that they're having? Do they understand the options available to them if it's not transport by EMS? And the documentation of that understanding, that's more comprehensive than simply A&O times four. We also talked about the pediatric population really highlighting that mom and dad or the legal guardian are the only people who are allowed to offer refusal for these pediatric patients, but that we live in the real world just like you do, and that if you make a valiant attempt to contact a guardian without success, there's room if you contact medical control authority to maybe leave that patient in the care of a trusted adult or friend. Also, keep up on your radar the fact that a pediatric patient who has a guardian refusing medical care for them may be non-accidental trauma or abuse. EMS is a mandated reporter for abuse of the pediatric population. These forms can be clunky and you don't do them all the time. Our recommendation is to talk to a supervisor to get some help in filling out the forms for a 3200 There is, again, a link on the DEMCA website to offer assistance for filling out these forms. And lastly, document, document, document. The best way to make sure that your patient gets great care and you stay out of trouble is to document the conversation you had with the patient to prove that they truly understood the medical emergency and their options 
document who you left the patient with if they're a pediatric patient, full name and phone number, document when you talked to medical control, and if you can, get the name of the physician that you spoke with so on the back end we can follow up. Thank you so much for being here with us this morning for our first episode of EMS in the Motor City podcast. We're hoping to be able to do many more of these and reach out to our medics. That being said, we'd love feedback on this episode. What went well? What would you like us to see? What would you like us to do in the future? Including any topics that are of interest to you, any burning questions you have. We can take all of those emails at info, I-N-F-O, at demka.org. Thanks so much.